Hey everyone, it's Jacqueline Melanick. Welcome to Chain Reaction, a show that unpacks and dives deep into the latest trends, drama, and news with some of the biggest names in crypto, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. For this week, for Chain Reaction's news segment, we're diving back into spot Bitcoin ETFs and what could be coming down the pipeline as the tension builds up after a number of reporters and ETF analysts are hearing indications for approvals. As it stands, there's 14 asset management firms, including BlackRock, Fidelity, Grayscale, and others, hoping to win their own application's approval from the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission for their spot Bitcoin ETF applications. And some reports are now saying it might happen soon, given the frequent meetings and updated filings in the recent weeks. Since this moment has been a long time coming, as over the last decade, the SEC has rejected a number of applications for Bitcoin spot ETFs. And to date, the only crypto ETFs that exist are tied to futures contracts for Bitcoin and Ethereum, not the spot market itself. At the time of recording on Wednesday, January 3rd, there is still no decision, but many are hoping one comes soon. Joining me today to sparse through all of this is Fred Thiel, the CEO of Marathon Digital Holdings, a digital asset tech company that is home to the largest publicly traded Bitcoin mining firm. Thanks for coming on, Fred. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. So I spoke about it a bit in the intro, but based on the quick recap of what's been going on with the spot ETF approvals so far or impending ones, what elements do you think hold the most significance for these applications today? You know, as you look at these applications, the back and forth with the SEC seems to have been on a lot of technical details, which leads me to believe that it's not a principle-based decision that's going to be made. If anything, there will be decisions based on technical readiness of each particular applicant. I think also the SEC is maybe, should be, let's put it that way, concerned regarding if they allow one or two to be approved and delay a number of other ones that are essentially giving a first mover advantage to a couple of funds. So it's going to be a interesting set of decisions. Supposedly, the SEC had set a deadline of end of last year for applicants to submit certain details of cash settlement, et cetera, so that they could inform the applicants by the 5th or 6th. And the window is the 5th through the 10th. Realistically, the public will find out about it sometime around the 8th, I think. Mm -hmm. But even Kathy Wood has supposedly said that it's not unlikely that some of the applicants are delayed. Interestingly, she didn't say denied. She said delayed. How do you kind of see the application approval timeline playing out if that January 10th deadline is correct? So essentially what that gives the applicants the ability to do is go live, meaning they can start marketing and promoting. They put in place the final little things they need to be able to actually execute trades and take in money, et cetera. I may be wrong, but my understanding is 45 to 60 days post-approval, they're actually live and receiving purchases from interested buyers. And why do you think this timeline has been moved up so much? Is it based off the things that you said before, or is it a matter of other aspects that maybe haven't been brought up to the public? If by moved up, you mean, because in reality, you know, these applications have been delayed, delayed, Right. Delayed. In reality, there's there's no answer yet. But right. I'm saying if it plays out on this January 10th deadline, why do you think it has been moved up? Because I remember even a couple months ago or even last month, people were like, yeah, it's going to happen. It's a matter of when, not if. Right. <laughs> and it's going to happen in 2024. And now everyone's saying, hey, it's happening right now in the beginning of January is the hope. Well, technically speaking, there were a couple of applications, and I think ARC included, which have hard yes, no dates of Jan 10th because they've already been delayed. Right. And so the SEC can delay. They have, I, I'm 
not 100% sure on the technical details of how this all works, but essentially the SEC is allowed to delay, and then you come to a point where they have to flatly deny or approve. Right. And they're at that deadline with, I think, three to five funds. So that's what's really driving this January you know, 8th to 10th deadline. And to play devil's advocate, I'm sure you saw the reports this morning on Wednesday that a rejection could happen. Matrixport analyst apparently thinks that it won't go through. And that's just one person. And experts are saying the odds are low, but it's not impossible. What do you think is the possibility of a Bitcoin spot ETF application rejection actually happening? You know, there are 12 applications, I think, that are active. It's not unforeseeable that some may be flatly denied because the funds just aren't ready. They haven't submitted enough details. They haven't gotten everything done. If you kind of read between the lines on recent news, kind of rumor mills, you've been hearing that Fund XYZ has been talking with the SEC, other funds. And if you kind of try and parse it together, not all 12 seem to be in dialogue with the SEC. So that would lead me to believe that some will be denied. You know, no commentary regarding matrix port, but the Bitcoin market is a very thinly traded market still. The majority of Bitcoin is held by wallets that haven't moved Bitcoin in over a year. You don't have a whole lot of liquidity on exchanges. Rumors drive the market. All events like this are buy the rumor, sell the news. And it's an opportunity for traders when you come out with a news item that you, know, you think about how you described what they said, that there could be some denials. The word could mm-hmm. is not very definitive. And yeah, it's there's a likelihood that one or two may be denied. Does that mean that the ETFs won't be successful, the ones that are approved? No, not at all. But it's people misreading the news. There was a lot of retail flurry into Bitcoin just around the end of the year. You know, prices were going up. Everything was moving up. Retail was coming back in and starting to trade. And I think what we're now seeing is retail saying, oh, my gosh, I'm panicking a little bit. I think institutional buyers are licking their chops because they're able to buy Bitcoin at 42 and 41 versus having to pay 45 for it. So, you know, right away, they're getting a benefit of this. Longer term, and even Matrix Port said this, you know, they expect at the end of 2024, you know, Bitcoin <laughs> to be way up there. So yeah. I, I, I think this is an opportunity to buy personally. My personal advice, not investment advice. Yeah, of course. Um, but I think it's an opportunity to buy. Yeah, no, this show is a NFA, not financial advice. We always tell people to do their own research, of course. And on the topic of approvals, I agree with you. I don't think all of them will be approved today, next week, or even in a month. It takes time for each application to get its own response. And there's a lot of conversations out there that BlackRock will be the first one to get it, given the sheer size of it, kind of their relationship with the government and other institutional entities, I guess, to say. I'm curious if you think that's the case, that BlackRock will kind of be this first mover in the space, or do you see it as like maybe BlackRock and others or others completely and not BlackRock? I'm curious your thoughts there. So you kind of have to go with BlackRock because let's face it, they have 554 ETFs that have been approved and only five denied. So you got to imagine that they, A, know how to do it, B, have all the infrastructure in place to deal with it, and C, have a great relationship with the people at the SEC. So, you know, they weren't going to go after this if they didn't think there was a chance of this being denied because, you know, Larry Fink wouldn't want to have that black mark on him. Yeah, I think ARC is the other one that will <laughs> likely get approved. Right. And then there's a cascade down from that of three or four. And, you know, I'm... I would expect at least five to get approved. Again, the SEC, they don't just want to approve BlackRock. That would open them up to lawsuits, I think. Mm, Why is that? Well, they're giving BlackRock a first mover advantage Mm -hmm. on the field. Right. So 
with that all said, I've talked about this on the show in the past with other guests, but I'd love to hear your opinion too, Fred. What would a spot Bitcoin ETF mean for investors and institutions alike, maybe looking to get in the space? Some might already be in the space. And what does it mean for Bitcoin? So you have to think of Bitcoin as an institutional asset. There are three ways, basic ways to play Bitcoin outside of the futures and options markets. One is you buy and hold spot Bitcoin, go to Coinbase, go to whoever and buy and hold spot Bitcoin. The ETF now provides an opportunity for retail buyers who have trading accounts, brokerage accounts at Charles Schwab, other places like that, who would like to have some exposure to Bitcoin in their, whether it's 401ks, IRAs, or just in their savings, who don't want to go through the risk and hassle of necessarily opening an account on a centralized exchange. There's been so much news over the past years of issues with exchanges, and we had all the problems through FTX, et cetera, that I think, you know, a lot of people have, especially my generation, the boomers, are definitely on the sidelines around Bitcoin because it's just difficult to, you can't just invest in it like stock. So that's spot Bitcoin. So I think you have some people who are going to definitely take advantage of the ETF as a way to invest and hold Bitcoin without having to worry about custody, without having to worry about all those things. And the fees are de minimis, so it's good. Mm -hmm. Institutions especially can be limited from holding spot Bitcoin other ways, so it provides them with an ability. If you then look at people who are more active traders, you can look at MicroStrategy as a way of holding Bitcoin, right? It's an equity, you can invest in it, it trades on the market. And you can play on the beta generated by, you know, the fact that Michael Saylor can load his balance sheet up with debt, buy Bitcoin, and then go and do it again, right? Or you can buy miners, which is kind of what we call the Warren Buffett approach, which is, you know, why buy gold when you can buy the gold producers? Because in up years, the cost tends to be fixed, but the profits grow dramatically. And if you look historically at Bitcoin miners and how they trade relative to spot Bitcoin price, there's definitely you know, more volatility in the miners. So with Bitcoin moves 2%, the miners move 4 to 6% in both directions, both up and down. Mm -hmm. So in an up market, you know, people tend to push the miners up. And that's why if you look at last year, Bitcoin miners were up almost 3x what Bitcoin was when you look at a percentual gain. So those are kind of the three ways to play it. You know, traders are going to tend to play the miners because they can get in and out of them. They're highly liquid. It doesn't impact the price of Bitcoin at all. And especially miners like ourselves who hold a lot of Bitcoin, we're a great proxy for Bitcoin. So you've got those three alternatives. The people who have not been buying Bitcoin are going to go after the ETF because it's a safer bet. So I think the ETF is an institutional play for family offices who don't want direct Bitcoin exposure by holding it themselves. They prefer to do it through a custodian by an ETF. And it's also great for retirement plans and for you know, people who don't want to have to deal and aren't interested in other crypto. Bitcoin's the only thing they're interested in. So why bother right. with a Coinbase account? So I think that's where you're going to see it. But potentially that could be huge. You look at gold ETFs and gold has the same dynamic as Bitcoin, right? Gold is a commodity. Gold is produced. Gold price moves up and down with various macro factors. And you can hold spot gold. You can buy gold futures. You can buy gold mm -hmm. miners. You can do all those things. When the gold ETFs launched, they generated a fairly large amount of demand. Mm -hmm. And so I think the market is anticipating anticipating significant demand in Bitcoin ETFs, which will require those ETFs to acquire Bitcoin, which in turn will drive the Bitcoin price up. Again, back to what I said earlier about limited liquidity in the market around Bitcoin. You know, you get $5 billion coming into a fund all of a sudden, and that's a significant amount of Bitcoin that has to get purchased. And what's that going to do in mm -hmm. the marketplace? So. 
Of the uh, 14 proposals that we've talked about, a number of them had filings last week where they talked about how their potential ETFs would have a certain fee. And I'm curious, Fred, if you think there is a sweet spot for the fees. Obviously, some people might like go towards the ones that are the lowest fees. So far, Fidelity has shared that there's a 0.39%. Others are between that level up to 0.80% mm-hmm. for a fee. So what does that really mean in the grand scheme for these investors? Obviously, people want to keep it as low as possible because they want to retain as much value as they can. But when it comes down to these tiny points, do you think it really makes a difference given the amount of volume that people are putting in or when it comes to people who are investing in long term options, like you said before, with like retirement accounts, will they just pick whatever's kind of presented to them opposed to what's the lowest basis points? I mean, for the average consumer investing in you know retail buyer investing in Bitcoin via an ETF point. Three, so 30 basis points versus 80 basis points. Is it really going to make a difference on their $5,000, $10,000 investment? No, not really. Mm -hmm. Institutional buyer who's putting $100 million at play? Yeah, it definitely makes a difference. And it's also going to be a brand name marketplace where brand is going to drive kind of attractiveness of, of offering, you know, BlackRock has a reputation. Fidelity has a reputation. ARK isn't as well known amongst retail buyers. They're more known amongst institutions. And so I think each ETF is going to cater a little bit to their sweet spot in their marketplace. But I think a fee structure somewhere between 25 basis points and 80 basis points, likely the sweet spot is going to be somewhere around 40 basis points. Right. That would make a lot of sense. And kind of dialing back before you talked about Bitcoin mining and given that your company is a major Bitcoin mining firm, what do you think an approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF could mean for Bitcoin miners in the long term? Again, more demand for Bitcoin. It's essentially a demand shock, which drives the Mm -hmm. price of Bitcoin up. When the price of Bitcoin goes up, the value of public miner stocks go up. Last year was a huge year for the mining segment. I mean, we went from $3.50 a share all the way up to, we peaked at just about $31.10 a few days before New Year's. So that's a, you know, nearly a 10x run right there. Mm-hmm. So for the Bitcoin miners, if Bitcoin price goes up, it's very good in general. Same thing applies when Bitcoin price goes down, by the way. <laughs> we move faster yeah. down. <laughs> Do you think there's a reality, though, where if these spot Bitcoin ETFs are approved, that the market just doesn't have the same demand that people in a Bitcoin and crypto think it would have, that people aren't rushing in to buy it the way that we expect them to? Well, I think there is a huge amount of confirmation bias that exists in any market from insiders. The advocates, the passionate followers, the maxis, you know, it's to the moon, right? And uh, (laughs) I know I'm going to get some hate mail for saying that. No, you're Um, good. (laughs) But, you know, if you talk to RIAs who are registered investment advisors and you talk to Goldman and you talk to the banks and even JP Morgan, regardless of what Jamie Dimon says, you know, their clients want an allocation to Bitcoin. They don't want an allocation to crypto. They want an allocation to Bitcoin. And this is a safe way for them to do it. And so I think what you're going to see, was it Fidelity who said, one of the advisors said, you know, a one to 2% allocation to Bitcoin in a 60-40 portfolio split between equity and bonds would give you a risk-adjusted return that was significantly higher than if you had just had the stocks and bonds. Mm. And so I think, you know, that 
especially in an environment where expectation is interest rates are going to drop, the economy is going to slow down, equity markets are going to likely, you know, valuations of publicly traded companies because of the slowdown in the economy, their profits will decrease, etc. I think what we'll see is Bitcoin will be this safe haven, fair weather asset, like it has shown to kind of be over the past few years. And I think it's going to be very good times for Bitcoin ETFs and for Bitcoin in general. At the same time, you've got opportunities for potential greater liquidity in the markets as Fed starts looking to cut rates and things like that. So it's going to be a very interesting year. It's an election year. Politicians are going to want the economy to be doing well, especially the Democrats. So Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see a lot of things to try and win over voters. And you know, potentially this whole, the shift in the stance from the SEC is a bit of that. There is quite a large number, 50 million people in the U.S. today, I think, that hold or have held Bitcoin and crypto. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty large number of potential voters, right? for sure. And so why alienate voters on a single issue like that when you can say, fine, okay, we'll allow Bitcoin ETF. We're crypto friendly to some extent. Mm -hmm. Oh, and by the way, we locked up Sam Bankman-Fried and these other guys. (laughs) Yeah, about that. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's over like 10 or 20 percent of the adult population has a uh, crypto. But yeah, to wrap things up, Fred, I wanted to talk a little bit about Bitcoin pricing. Everyone's talking about it. Bitcoin is over $40,000 in the forty two dollars to $45,000 range. It hit its highest level yesterday on January 2nd, which was the highest level since April 2022. Do you think the current Bitcoin price is priced into the market based on everything we know now and have talked about? And if not, what do you think will drive the price in general, whether that's up or down in 2024? Uh, gosh. Um, <laughs> have don't, to ask. Don't, don't think we have enough time for the full answer, but I think here's, <laughs> here's kind of the Reader's Digest version. Bitcoin price is very driven by global liquidity and access to investment capital, right? It's an asset just like old or other things. And then you have the nuance of Is it a risk-on or a risk-off environment? It's a risk-on environment. People historically have invested in Bitcoin. In a risk-off environment, they've shied away from it. I think that has now changed somewhat because it's become more of a safe haven asset, especially over last year. So the longer-term trend is only positive for Bitcoin. I think we're going to see the halving occur, which I don't think has a huge impact from a supply perspective on Bitcoin. You're going to go from producing 900 new Bitcoin per day in the market to 450. I don't think that's small. Delta in supply is going to drive major supply shock. What I do Mm -hmm. think you're going to see is demand shock. You're going to see the ETFs start needing to buy Bitcoin. You're going to start seeing companies looking at Bitcoin on the balance sheet with the FASB changes. You know, this is a Mm -hmm. bit of a sleeper thing. Not a lot of people realize the importance of the fact that once a company and fund, et cetera, can hold Bitcoin on the balance sheet and market to market, now all of a sudden it becomes attractive. Before it was an intangible asset and you could only impair it. And so you carried it on your balance sheet at its lowest value. This is going to cause companies to start using it as a treasury asset. The other thing you're going to see, because we have this myopic view of the U.S. as everything, right? You start shifting your view outside of the U.S. There's more mining done outside the U.S. than in the U.S. There is more Bitcoin trading done outside the U.S. than in the U.S. I thought the U.S. was at the top or was that like a year or two ago? It's the (laughs) largest single country, but Russia is a number two Mm Kazakhstan, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the U.S. is sub 45% of the global blockchain. So when you start adding all that up and you start seeing a continued desire from sovereigns to de-dollarize and look at alternative 
methods to hold their assets. You know, let's face it, if you're trading with China, do you really want to keep all your assets in in Yuan or in MIBI? Most probably not. If you're trading with India, do you want to hold it in rupees? Most probably not. If you can't hold it in dollars, where are you going to hold it? And so gold, you look at the central banks, all of the global central banks have been huge buyers of gold over the past 24 months. Why? Because of the weaponization of the U.S. dollar. So throw it all into a pot, cook it, stir it. And what it says is there should be more global demand for Bitcoin over the next two to three years than not. And so expect the price to continue to go up. And with the ability of ETFs, you've now removed friction from the process of holding it. And so you'll now start seeing people begin to experiment. And, you know, the timing of these ETFs is perfect because in Bitcoin cycles, and I'm not saying that the cycles always repeat, but we are in that phase of the cycle where, you know, we should exceed the all-time high sometime in 2024. Then there'll be a bit of a retracement. And then you'll see a new all-time high sometime in third quarter or fourth quarter of 2025. All right. Um, that's if we follow traditional patterns, right? So that's not based on any mm-hmm. empirical thing. That's purely if we follow patterns uh, historically. Yeah. And I think a lot of people trade that way and a lot of people focus that way. I certainly know mm-hmm. when I talk to people, they're all saying, yeah, you know, it's the same cycle as last time. Yeah, 2025 is going to be the home run year. So I think you're going to see a lot of people put their toes in the water this year. And then as the price of Bitcoin starts increasing, you're going to see more and more people come in. It's this positive reinforcement that happens. So we're certainly excited. Yeah, that's definitely exciting for the Bitcoin space and people watching it. So there's lots to keep an eye on here. And I'm excited to see how things shake out. But with all that said, Fred, thank you for joining us on the show this week. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week with conversations around what's going on in the wild world of Web3 with top players in the crypto ecosystem. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and stories we talked about can be found in our show notes. And be sure to follow us at Chain underscore Reaction on Twitter. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Jacqueline Melanick, and produced by Maggie Stamets, with assistance from Yashad Kulkarni and editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and Henry Picavet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks for listening in. See you next time.